New Thinking Aloud, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring intuition, psychic functioning, and dreaming. My guest is my dear old friend, Henry Reed, a former professor of psychology at Princeton University. He has worked for decades with the Edgar Casey Foundation and the Association for Research and Enlightenment and Atlantic University, which is affiliated with the Casey Group. This is probably the most unusual and special in many ways interview that I have ever done because Henry got so caught up in his passion that my role as an interviewer is extremely minimal. Uh, it's one of the best interviews and uh, one in which I have probably operated more at the telepathic level than verbally. And now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Henry. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's really exciting to be here. It's an honor. You're very special to me in my history of research. Yes, we've known each other for many, many decades. And I'm delighted this is your first appearance on the New Thinking Aloud channel. And I'm thrilled to be with you, Henry, because you've been involved in this work for so long, as I recall, your involvement with the Edgar Casey Foundation began when you were still a student. Uh, yeah, I was a graduate student at, at, at the UCLA when I first heard about Edgar Casey. It was more about hearing from my friend James Terrell about the importance of dreams that he was using so well. And he mentioned he learned about dreams from Edgar Casey. That's how I first met him. And then we got started work. I think, I don't know when you started the Intuition Network, but at that time I had visited the Casey place and I had a very special dream about how to do research, a dream that I'm still pursuing to this day. Well, my involvement with the Intuition Network, as I recall, goes back to the 1990s. But, you know, your interest in dreams and intuition and my interest, I think, goes back much earlier to the 70s. Exactly, the mid-70s. Uh, I had my first, my first dream in a, uh, about 1968. And uh, by 1972, I was involving other people and having special dreams. And uh, this is how this whole intuition thing got started uh, with the dreams. I was giving a, a lecture, in fact, an invited lecture at the uh, dream, in, at the dream, what do they call it, the International Association for the Study of Dreams, describing the dream circle, where people volunteered a dream for a stranger. And as I was up on the podium describing the history of research trying to influence dreams and how very little we were able to accomplish. Dreams had a mind of their own, like trying to change the timing of the tides. I was wondering on stage, how do people dream for one another? And I said, and I just popped out of my, out my mouth, they just must do it intuitively. And at that moment, my whole shift from being what they call the, the dream work movement and so on, my whole interest shifted from dreams to intuition. It was a very interesting moment. Interesting in, indeed. Well, you are really a pioneer 
And I think before you, Edgar Cayce, in, in the idea that people can learn from their own dreams, that they don't need to get help from a professional psychologist or psychiatrist to understand and work with their dreams. Yeah, I think this is probably the most radical thing that was uh, that he brought forth with regard to dreams. And it sort of uh, previewed today sort of the deprofessionalization of a number of things. Uh, I have a, a student who was one of my best students at Princeton, as now a professor over there in the West Coast, talking about changing our whole system of helping to one of accompaniment, where we sit side by side with the people we're trying to help rather than face to face. And the thing about the dream circle and so on was that you didn't have to have a person who knew anything about dreams or how to interpret dreams. What you had to have was a spirit of cooperation and a real need for guidance. And we weren't doing it as a trick, but you were doing it because there was a purpose. There was a reason for it. And that sent me back to uh, when I was on that stage and realized, you know, that it's somehow they do it intuitively. Let's talk for a moment about Edgar Casey and his advice to people with regard to dreams. He is a forerunner and perhaps one of the original, what I would call gringo shamans of USA. And uh, very, very, in terms of his intellectual or he cognitive format, he was a devout Bible-coding Christian who taught Bible study. But uh, it was during the time of the 1800s where there was a lot of clairvoyant healers going around, people who'd be hypnotized, and they'd be able to diagnose other people's illnesses. And he was developing a problem of his own, and somebody wanted to use him as an experiment. He was a photographer, and he was losing his hearing or his voice, something like that. I'm not sure what it was, and they hypnotized him. And under hypnosis, he was able to give himself some suggestions on how to fix his hearing. And that's how it started. And that was very typical at the time. Nobody would have made a big deal about that because a lot of that stuff was going on back then. Another thing that was going on was the medical clairvoyance where somebody would be hypnotized and then would diagnose somebody else's illness. So out of curiosity, someone asked him if he could do that. And he was a little bit reluctant, but he did it and it proved to be okay. And then he got into a big internal conflict because it wasn't discussed in the Bible, but yet it was helping people. And a lot of his life is about his own personal interaction with himself and his ideals and, and so on, where the traditional society was against it. But it helped a lot of people. He's probably best known for various uh, specificity of medical uh, remedies and so on. Uh, for me, where he was most critical, besides talking about dreams, and we could talk about one of the things that he said was that dreams being a natural phenomenon of the human being, that there's a way to get guidance from the dreams. But it's not just thinking about them, it's acting upon them. And I had meant, said that the idea, if you wanted to dream to get a dream to help you, and you were trying to decide which door to go through with the monster or the money, you probably couldn't get a dream to go there to tell you what to do. Casey said, however, 
if on the best of your intuition, you'd make a commitment and choose one of the doors you were going to go through the next morning and make a solemn promise to do that, unless your dreams told you something else, you'd very likely have a dream telling you not to go through the door you chose or would be quiet because there was action involved. The dreams are biologically, biologically rooted. So what to implement his idea is this. If you'd like to get dreams about a guidance about topic X, start by doing something that's the best of your knowledge about how you might pursue that. Like you might say, well, the best I could do, I guess, is I'll go look it up on Google. And go look it up on Google. And go to bed with the hopes that your dream will give you a better idea because you actually acted on it. And uh, when we combine that suggestion of his with what I learned being a Jungian analyst and Jung's whole approach to dreams, it's as if here's, if you give you a picture of what's going on in dreaming is something like this. Imagine you're a little kid out playing in the front yard and your parents are sitting up on the front porch. You're playing with a ball, having a great time. The ball runs out into the road and you just immediately run out after it. As your parents see you running out after it, they go, and you overhear that a little bit. That's your dream. And that's your, your greater consciousness responding with greater knowledge and context to how you're, how you're carrying on with yourself during the day. But the things that often make a difference is what you do with the frame of mind with what you do. So uh, when we started this, which I guess then started the whole dream work movement, was just you pick a topic that you want some help with. And whether you use meditation or journal writing or whatever, you come up with what you think would be your best next step in getting wiser about that subject. And you act on it while you have a dream journal going, hoping to get a dream that will give you something better to do. Like I know I've often worked with women who wanted to get an exercise program that they'd stay with. I uh, said, so, well, why don't you start out by volunteering and every day you step outside and walk out to the end of your property and back asking for your dreams for a better way and see if doing that you'll get something that'll give you some kind of an idea about a better way to exercise a little bit by little bit. And so what we did back then was just created a series of journal exercises whereby a person would follow the hints they think they're finding in their dreams and act on them with regard to uh, achieving certain kind of goal. So there was a kind of a procedure. You can kind of understand that from a scientific point of view, you know, getting evidence, testing out your understanding of it, revising your hypothesis, experimenting again to see if it's right. So what the Andrew Casey Place did, the Association for Research and Enlightenment back then in the 70s, they had a huge membership. So I asked them here, I wrote up a little program about how to do this and asked people to try it. Just try it and see. 
And we had about 300 people that tried it and produced some tremendous stories about how they got guidance from dreams and how it worked out. So I just published their stories in a journal uh, so people could read about it because that's the scientific method. And now today they say that's what started the whole dream work movement. Now, I had a lot of nightmares and agony about that because dreams were telling me to call it the Sundance Community Dream Journal. And we would call that today cultural appropriation. So I had to do a lot of solo work and I happened to meet with uh, Rolling Thunder and so on to actually feel inside that what I was offering was keeping with the spirit of the Native American ceremony. <laughs> I'm grateful for them to having the wisdom to see, to bring forth how we can use these things. This is the other part, Jeffrey, that I think is so important, is use these abilities for better understanding with one another. And this is what the Dream Circle did because it showed strangers could intuitively understand the dilemma of a stranger in distress without ever being revealed, just their dreams, you know, and there'd be compassion and understanding being generated in the circle. You might be interested in how we came about this because it says something about, I think, about the importance of doing how to do research. Well, it's kids. We have kids to thank for all of this. Children were the, the brainstorm for all of this. And working in a, in a community where dreams are alive I had a big to deal with it. The Edgar Casey Children's Camp up where I live, um, they have dreams as a part of their daily program. You know, they share dreams in the morning and so on. So they invited me to come to the camp to work with the dreams. And so I set up on the basis of a dream I had, I set up a tent for kids to sleep in. <clears throat> and I was able to announce to them at, the, at lunchtime, they could look out the window and they could see the tent down there by the creek. And I could tell them what it was for. I'm choking up because it's such a special time that if they had a problem, they could have a dream about it and maybe get a solution. And it was a tent was a special place that I had prayed over for them to have a special dream. But the thing was, they had to have a dream first telling them it was okay for them to go into the dream tent. And only if they had a special dream telling them it was okay to go into the dream tent, and I couldn't tell them what that special dream might be like, then they could go in. Well, kids started coming to me with dreams, and I started working with them, and they'd be sleeping in the dream tent. And they'd have to go down there in the morning and fast all day. And we would be in the cafeteria, and we could look down there and see them at the creek. And everybody knew why they were there. They didn't know what they were up for, you know, what their problem was, but they knew they were there for a dream. The other kids started coming up. I'd be working, of course, with the person with the dream tent. We did a lot of artwork and psychodrama and so on in preparation for their spending the night in the dream, dream tent. The kids would come up to me and tell me their dreams, and I would realize that kids were dreaming about that kid. They were empathizing. One, you know, what's he doing? I hope he does okay. I've got the same problem, different kinds of stuff. Because they were being raised in that community of love, of cooperation, and so on. 
and dreams were evident everywhere you could see dreams because they were talked about. It was that you could draw them. There were pictures on the wall. This is a very different kind of environment. One of the things I said about Edgar Casey was the preliminary coming in of a gringo shamanism. And we're so envious of native people because somehow they have got a special connection with, with life that we don't have. And we have it. We're just not in touch with it. And this is what Jeffrey and the intuition bringing forth. So I was so impressed with that, I wondered if we could do it on purpose. And when I had first gone to the Association for Research and Environment and had been invited by Charles Thomas Casey, who I met at the Council Drive Conference, when, by the way, a Rolling Thunder made his first appearance. I was there in the front row, uh, and, and we made eye contact and so on, and Charles Thomas of Casey was there. And he invited me to Virginia Beach. I was there at Princeton. People always wanted my Princeton credentials as if they were worth anything. Uh, so I go to Virginia Beach and I had this dream that night. There at night I get there staying at Charles Thomas Casey's farm where I have arrived at the Association for Research and Enlightenment. And we're wanting to seek enlightenment. But well, we don't know what to do. We're bumbling around in the dark, bumping into one another. What are you, how are we going to find enlightenment? Then all of a sudden, that's a key phrase in dreams, all of a sudden. Where does this come from? We start dancing. Why do we start dancing? Where does that come from? That's so special. We start dancing. We're dancing in a circle. And as we're dancing, each person is displaying a sign, some kind of a symbol. And as we meet and greet one another, like the Sufi dancing I learned from Pure Goliath Khan, and we bow and greet and so on, we look at the person's symbol, we look at their symbol, and we recognize the person by their symbol. It's really weird. And we are really feeling united, and all of a sudden, in the middle of our dance, this big fountain of sparks shoot up. And we realize this is how to do the research. This is our dance of research. And I woke up from the dream. And that, I looked up and started looking at the archetype of that, and the maypole dance and the sun dance and so on. And I had received a letter at Princeton, it arrived at my Princeton faculty mailbox addressed to me, Henry Reed, care of Sundance College. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, Jeffrey. I can't help but sometimes get choked up about this stuff. It's been a long road. Been a long road. I got kicked out of Princeton because obviously I wasn't being scientific if I would have people pray for a dream. That back then you looked at dream research as like an egg factory and you'd poke the person this way and that, see what kind of dreams would pop out. Whereas I was I was engaging the person in something to dream. One of the things that Edgar Casey had in common with, I want to think of that transpersonal psychologist who was killed when a sports car dumped on him, uh, the transparent self. He was the author of the transparent self. And he said, we shouldn't use subjects as like guinea pigs, but we should have dialogue with them. And that was Edgar Casey was saying, if we would come together and talk and visit with one another, we would come up with the research and the method to go. 
And so I've gone with that and trying to figure out how do people dream for one another? But that's how it got started. You know, with that dream I had, it gave a structure to how to structure it. The dream circle is going on today because it, it doesn't require any talents. Some of the uh, some of the ways we've derived intuitive functioning from the some of the ways that we've derived intuitive functioning from the dream circle does require some practicing. And we could talk about that, but the dream circle requires no practice on anybody's part. In fact, now we have it going on the internet where volunteers, if you're willing to send out an email once a day to a group of eight people for eight days, those people can participate in a dream circle. And we usually do it by time zones for everybody's convenience. And so let's say we, we say we get an email, say at two o'clock in the afternoon. And the first email that you would get, you'd have to do your homework and respond by noon the next day. So the administrator would have time to compile everybody's stuff and mail it out to everybody by two o'clock the next day. And we would go through this, some stages. And the first stage would be you'd have a chance to introduce yourself a little bit and then indicate whether or not you wanted to be dreamed for because you didn't have to be dreamed for to be in the circle. Um, but uh, we, we wanted to open that opportunity. And then what we did, everybody who wanted to be dreamed for would indicate, would give us a four-digit number. And then the administrator would say a prayer over the computer that was going to pull a four-digit number by random, that the person whose issue would bring the most light to everybody would be the issue that would be chosen. So then they hit the four, the random number, and then that would choose a person. And then an email would go out to everybody, so-and-so is who we're going to dream for tonight. And they might not ever know some because they're all over the country or at least within those two time zones. We could have maybe 10 people doing it. And then their next email they get instructions would be to, there would be a, uh, a, a, an exercise for the people to go through about habits that help dream recall, like have a tablet by your bed, drink some water, blah, blah, blah. And they had to send an email via the administrator promising to the person being dreamed for, I promise to remember a dream for you tonight. And then the next day, uh, they would mail in all of their dreams, and the administrator would collect them all and be mailing them out to all of the dreamers, just identified by uh, slogan names or what it handles. And one of the things that we do, this was based on a doctoral dissertation that was done by Mark Thurston with Stanley Krippner. Before we would let the person being dreamed for see the dreams as an act of helping them with discernment, I had some random dreams that were from previous dream circles, but not for them, mixed in with their dreams. And their task was to rate all of the dreams in this collection, to, and we would see if they rated and recognized dreams that were actually meant for them, higher than dreams that weren't meant for them. The Barnum effect is what the skeptics usually say. 
if a person, oh, that's for me, say, oh, it was a Barnum effect. So we would run that little test as an aside. Then after the person would have rated all the dreams, then we would, the next email, they would get all the dreams and then they would have to write little uh, responses to them. Meanwhile, the other people would have to look for commonalities in the dreams, which proved to be very important in terms of research on dream interpretation. And I think it's really important what's come out in the years since for me to say a little bit about that, if you'd let me, Jeffrey. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm going to tell you two makeup dreams so you can see what I'm talking about. In the first dream, I'm driving to work. And I come, the traffic light, and it turns red, and so I stop. I sit there waiting for the traffic light to change. It changes to green, and I start to go when all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I see a car's running through the light. So I stop and let that car through, and then I proceed on about my business, okay? That's one dream. Here's another dream. I'm watching television, watching my show, and a commercial comes on. So I stop and I get up and I go into the kitchen to get myself a cup of coffee. I go and I pour a cup of coffee. I go into the refrigerator, I get some cream. I go to pour, get the cream. I go to pour the cream in the coffee. And just as I do that, I notice that the cream is sour. Ooh. So I toss that away and I go into the refrigerator. I get some fresh cream poured into my coffee. And then I go back into the living room just as the TV show is returning. Now, those two dreams have no symbols in common. There are no, hardly any even nouns in common in the transcripts. But most people can see those two dreams have a lot in common. It starts out, two people are doing something very ordinary and routine. And then something very out of ordinary happens that would have negative consequences for them. And they happen to notice it in time and take adjust, make adjustments that save the day. So it turns out that when you have a dream circle, the dreams are all over the place. But when you ask the people to start looking at the commonalities of the dreams, they can do that. And just like we did, and it's very obvious to people, and the more they discuss it. Meanwhile, if we're doing a live circle, the person we've dreamed for has their back turned to us, but is listening to all of this. But that's, that's the next stage of the process. Uh, and then the next email, when they do it by email, is they're asked to make some guesses as to, given those kinds of commonalities, what kind of issue do you think is involved? And here they say issues of, well, it's everyday event. It was something, she, they were expecting a certain kind of thing and it didn't happen and that sort of thing. Does it sound like a medical thing? No. Does it sound like a financial thing? Well, possibly a social thing. Well, maybe. And it turned out the, the, there was some kind of unexpected, as it turned out, thing in an, an investment or whatever, they would have really wrecked stuff. And this is where it was picking up on. So that's how people with no dream experience can work with the dreams because they work with a set of dreams and it's the commonalities. And then from there, they can kind of start getting into maybe the area that's being touched on.
And then they come up after that's done, we let the person turn around and they read the prayer they wrote the night before about what they wanted help with. And they respond to all of the dreams. Uh, and then the last part is we could do a special meditation where everybody, in, in effect, uh, writes, write, closes their eyes, writes a title for their dream, and asks themselves, what does the title of my dream say about me? And then they come out of the circle, and everyone goes around and says, here's what I've been learning about myself from my dream that might have something to do with the person's situation. So they're taking it back, and there's a unity that's built because we have an empathy. I have discovered you in myself. And here's how it is for, here's how you are inside of me. And this is where it has, I think, great ramifications today. Two things today in terms of the pandemic and being confronted with, with the unity and oneness and also how to have conversations with people who are not like-minded because in my dream of the research dance says, we don't recognize our similarities by the verbal discourse. It's at a symbolic verbal kind of other kind of, of level kind of deal. Like we all have know what it's feel like to be a protective for our child, for example, regardless of, you know, whatever we are, that kind of a thing. So one of the things that's come out of this, besides the, besides the opening up the dream work movement and so on, Another person uh, affiliated with Edgar Casey, Scott Sparrow, who's a professor at University of Texas now, he was enabling counselors to work with people's dreams if counselors would just forget about symbolism and just look at how the person is behaving with what's coming up for them in their dream. In other words, a very common sense, almost a literature kind of an approach to the narrative of the dream. And then all of a sudden you can forget about Jungian psychology and all this other stuff. And you can, you can empathize with the person and the condition that they're in. And that approach has also been used to help uh, veterans and their nightmares, this kind of an approach. So anyway, I think it has a lot uh, of potential uh, dreams. And one of the things that I've been very much interested in is whether or not teenagers can do this dream circle without grown-ups involved. Are they capable of following the procedures? Because you're, you're, you're enlisting projection, but in a very honorable way for a purpose and working as a circle. And teenagers are going to have to face stuff that the grown-ups are not going to have to face. And I just think, what would it be like if teenagers could get together and use this as a way of guiding themselves? This is one of the things of one of my future projects. I think we skipped a step uh, in this. We talked about people working with their own dreams. We talked about the dream groups. But I think there was an intermediate step, which would be one person dreaming for one other person. When we started this, it was a group of people dreaming for one person so that you'd have the comparison of the dreams to use as your as your intellectual leverage or your intuitive leverage to understand the dreams if you only have one person
to to help another. Now we get into and it's a good question. Get into this. Uh, we start with this. I start with this. What do you call it? The thought experiment. Supposing I were extremely psychic. If I were just perfectly psychic, and I'm a counselor, I'm a shrink. I was licensed as a shrink. Um, how could I use my psychic ability to help somebody without violating my sacred oath, which is to do no harm? Now, in traditional psychotherapy, the way you do harm is through your countertransference, besides poor training. So, uh, counter-transference usually comes out in our responses and our advice to the other person. So my fantasy was this. I would be so psychically attuned to the person that it would bring up for me something that happened in my life that I could tell them a story about something that happened to me. Knowing and having faith that when they heard that story, they would take from it what they needed. And that would be their, their journey, the way they heard that story. I didn't know why I was telling them this story except for my intention. And it was them. And so I had a job. One of the ways I was earning money uh, with the association was that they would have these conferences and they would want to have psychics on board to give readings, and they would know how to choose psychics. So the job I had was to audition psychics, and I'm explaining this to you for a reason. So psychics would, I would usually, I would, if they wanted to audition, I would send them an envelope with, inside of it was a sealed envelope with my questions. And they were to mail me a cassette with their answers to my questions without opening the envelope. Then they were to open the envelope, read my questions, and then further comment on their readings, okay? Now, when we'd have a conference, I might audition 50 psychics who were all responding to my same questions. Nobody, I don't know of anybody else who's ever been in that position to have the luxury of having 50 professional psychics in all innocence answer my same questions. Because what I learned from that, and you just have to take my word for it, there were a lot of very good psychics who'd answered the questions in very, very different ways. And I'm a psychoanalyst. I could hear their own personality and their own background and the way they were approaching my question. So even though they were being right, they were also had a perspective, you know, about it. And that freed me up a lot. So in the course of doing that, I had a psychic who wanted to do the audition in person. And so I let him come to my office in Virginia Beach. She sat down and she explained that she wasn't being a psychic anymore, but she was really curious about how I was auditioning psychics. She went on to tell me that the reason she wasn't a psychic anymore 
was because people had come back to her and be asking her the same questions. They really didn't gain anything. She got tired of it. She was now a travel person, and she very arranged bus trips to go to uh, Atlantic City for old people to gamble. She said, but she couldn't get away from being a psychic because all the time she'd be talking to somebody and they'd say, funny you should say that. And I was scary. I was reading their mind in some kind of a way. And I said to her, funny you should say that because I had been thinking about uh, 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 an abstract or an ideal exchange, psychic ex exchange that a counselor might be allowed to have. Would you be willing to do a little experiment with me? And she said, yeah. So I wrote down a question on a piece of paper. And I said, what I want you to do is just relax for a moment. And when you're ready, just let a memory come to you. And so she did. And the memory, she said, look, uh, I arranged these bus trips to go to Atlantic City. And I heard about, went to the local hospital because I knew the nurses would be really good at that. They would want to do it. And I made this presentation to them, and they really liked it. They said, we want to do it, but you have to make us this formal proposal, and so on, we'll do it. So I went back, and I worked on my proposal, and I did everything, went over it again, and I made it the most perfect proposal I could. And I took it back to the hospital, and they said, where have you been? We thought you gave up on us. We never got your proposal. We've gone with somebody else. Uh, oh, my God, I've lost out on this business. What have I done? And I realized I had been so worked up on perception, percep perfection, I lost my way. And I pulled out my piece of paper and I said, funny you should say that. <laughs> Here was my question. What has been causing my writer's block? And I've been working on this book and I had arranged now instead of just doing it one, just a start, I had arranged an outline of chapters for each one was going to have this startling beginning and so on. And I had really gotten bogged down. So the thing worked. So I took that then and created what I called the, uh, the uh, it, in my experience exercise, later called the intuitive, later called the intuitive heart. One of the things we learn is that gratitude and truth both have one thing they have in common is they don't have an agenda. So that when you can get into a place of gratitude, you can let your mind go freely, whatever is yours your way. You have an intention for receiving intuitive information. So if you can approach it out of gratitude and so on, you don't have an agenda then you can trust the information that comes. So I was training people learning how to trust their natural breathing from autogenic training. It breathes me. And then to give thanks for their breathing. To, there's something to give thanks for, especially if you're so relaxed you couldn't take a breath if you wanted to. Thank God that life breathes me anyway kind of a deal. They get into a place of gratitude and feeling your heart opening up from that. So it's not where someone tells you, you ought to feel grateful. My mom would say that to me. And I can't feel grateful when she's saying that. But with the breath and relaxing into the breath and actually feeling this is really true and life does breathe me even when I'm not. And I always feel I have to be in control, but it's really not true. The life, you get into a place of God and the heart opens up and all of our literature and poetry and so on says, you know, the heart is aware of the oneness 
and make a heart connection with whatever it is you want to understand. And then just trust that whatever comes is, is what you need to hear. It takes some practice before you're willing to let go like that and then trust. But, you know, that's what it's like. And then let a memory come and use the memory as a way of uh, guidance for whatever it is that uh, we wanted to deal with. If you wanted to do a live demo here, I'd be risking my reputation. Uh, you had a secret question, I could do a thing. But one of the things that's interesting about it, you see, this is to me what's more important, is that it removes the psychic as a one-up and moves more into this idea that Mary Watkins, my student at Princeton, uh, now is at Pacifica, accompaniment. I share with you something that I've experienced and something that I've learned from it. We are sharing as equals. I'm not speaking down upon you here as a psychic I have. Here's the advice I have for you kind of a thing. It's more of an equal kind of a sharing. And so actually I've had people do this in person. Uh, and we can do it as a group. But now over the internet, I help people do this get people paired up, and there's, there's recordings that can be played to lead them through the process. So say if you and I, we wanted to get better, better acquainted or whatever, is that uh, you send me a, a list of 12 of your most pressing personal questions, and I send you a similar list. And then I, we'd put our lists together. So you've got a list of, you know, a bunch of questions. Half of them are yours and half of them are mine. And I have the same. So I get to go first and I'm going to do the reading. You use the computer and you pull out one of those questions as the target. I don't know what it is. I might be giving a reading for you. I might be getting a reading for me. I go through the, the, the process of getting into the gratitude, we're connected, a memory comes, I say the memory, the lesson that it has, I email it to you, and then you email back to me the question that was my target, and then we have a little discussion. What happens over time is we get a lot acquainted, and we also learn really how intuitive we are. We never would have suspected that these little memories had this. But you see, this is the kind. A lot of this stuff comes research in psychotherapy, uh, where uh, you're not trying to be psychics or what have you. But the therapist starts finding that he's got stuff going on in his mind that relates to stuff that the that the client is is going to start is going to start uh, talking about. I can remember one of these times that was a key for me. I was an, I used a hammock when I was a shrink. I had a hammock suspended from the ceiling and the client had the couch and I'd be rocking in the hammock and there was one client I always saw after lunch and I'm rocking in the hammock and they're going on with their oh, 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 that I'm used to hearing. Now no shrink will ever admit that they fall asleep during a session but I did go into an altered state of consciousness and I was remembering a time when I went out into the backyard and I found this little baby bird that it had fallen out of its nest and, and I had to pick it up and try to took a home into the porch and tried to feed it, but it would it wouldn't take any food and I couldn't really help it. And I came out of that and I realized, hey, I hadn't been listening to what this person's been telling me. And, uh oh, they'll so I said to him, I said, Well, you know, 
how does all that make you feel, you know? All that stuff. You're just telling me the trials and tribulations and, and so on. She says, well, I feel, you know, sort of lost. And it sort of reminds me, once I was with my mom uh, shopping in, in, in the store, and I got separated from her. And the sales lady came along and found me, you know, and, and said, oh, my goodness, and announced over the loudspeaker, we've got a little baby bird lost from his mom. Come and find him. And when I heard him say that, I thought, my goodness, my goodness, that's just what I was thinking about. And I realized, you know, the cry for help and hearing the cry for help and is the cry for help helping or is it getting in the way? And I had some insight into what was going on with him and realized that my that my fantasy was very relevant. And so uh, that led me to publish a couple of papers in some psychoanalytic journal about interpersonal intuition where the spontaneous mentation of one person is tuning into the other. And then it goes back to my dream of the research dance about how do we really get to feel close with one another? It probably has to do with sharing of stories. Stories are very different than explanations. And stories, you empathize and move along and to stand in the shoes of the characters. Whereas explanations, you sit, you sit back and, and think about and, 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 and so on. So that in my dream of the research dance, we were coming together in this unit of consciousness through our sharing of symbolism in some way. So I'm still working on experiments that are bringing people together in, in a nonverbal way, but that they can describe verbally. One we had where we're doing psychodrama, and everybody had told their dreams, and I get them just to spontaneously. We start role-playing little pieces of the dreams here and there, and there was a moment of flash when you could tell in everybody's eyes we had hooked together, we were really in sync, we were really joined. Those are very fleeting moments. Lately, I've been focusing more on non-dual awareness. Uh, there's a fellow that I remember reading in graduate school. The one Westerner had a symbolic way of talking about non-dual awareness. It was said, it's like having no head. And th thinking of your head on top of your neck, think of the world as your head. And all of a sudden, that gets you into non-duality. And now I'm working with how adding a heart connection to that sense of having no head, to getting that sense of oneness uh, and, and interest. And until, you see, one of the things, when I started this work, one of the challenges that I was given, the Edgar Casey people, they were so conflicted about psychic ability, so conflicted. If you were a psychic, you were not allowed to give readings on campus way back when I first met them. Uh, he said, psychic stuff will bring you, will attract you, but it's the spirituality that will keep you. Uh, so you were talking about uh, fantasies. You were talking about memories. How do you compare those to dreams in terms of the effectiveness? A dream helper circle, couldn't they work just as easily with memories as with dreams? On the long term, here's what I discovered. Well, I ask people, have you ever regretted not following a hunch? Yes, most people can say that. In fact, that's how I can bring a huge audience, 300 strangers into unity. 
Has anybody out here ever regretted not following a hunch? Raise your hand and everybody raises their hand. All of a sudden, we're on equal footing. Well, why didn't you follow that hunch? That often is not following a hunch and regretting it is often a teacher on learning to trust your intuition. And I start listening to some of the explanations and some of the excuses. Well, if it would come to me spontaneous, maybe, but if I tried to do it on purpose, I wouldn't trust it. So, well, why, why wouldn't you trust it? You know, that's a whole issue. Why wouldn't you trust something that comes to you? Well, maybe it's my hopes or my fears. And so there's a whole attitude about oneself, too, that's involved, too. The, the whole getting in, getting in with intuition requires an acceptance of self that's kind of like the Zen challenge. Here, I want you to come up here on stage and be yourself. All right, well, what do you want me to do? Well, just be yourself. Well, I don't know. What do you want? We don't know. What are you supposed to do? So the way I introduce folks to that, and I say, if you say that if an intuition comes to you spontaneously, well, okay. But if you have to do it on purpose, all right. Well, now, now focus on your breathing for a moment. I want you to notice something. All right. Here's what I want you to notice. When you turned your attention to your breathing, what happened? Did you start breathing deeper or something? Yeah, I took a deep breath. Yeah, okay. Well, I didn't ask you to screw around with your breathing. I asked you to notice your breathing. Why did you, in your first act of noticing your breathing, you messed with it? That's why you can't trust your intuition, because you mess with it. Suppose now if you were to relax enough so that you were to trust the breathing and let it come to you, then the thoughts that came to you maybe would have equal value. Or have something, you know, because you didn't get in your own way. Now, it's very interesting, Jeffrey, how these things work out. I was working with Henry Baldock when I first got involved with the Casey material. Because he did hypnosis work, you know, and Casey was hypnotized. So they wanted me. I was hired to write a book on channeling your higher self, but I knew nothing about it. So Henry Baldock hypnotized me. And the, and the idea was I was going to channel this book. And out of my mouth comes, we had a little practice with smoking and with past life memories. It was my first trip at this. And out of my mouth comes, Henry's expecting that he's going to dictate the channeling book when our hypnosis sessions. But Henry would, did not, would not like taking dictation, and that's not how it's going to work. Instead... When Henry was a boy at grandmother's house, next door was a man, and between them was a gravel driveway. And one day that man came to Henry and took a piece of gravel from that driveway and took Henry into the man's house and showed him his rock polisher. And he polished that rock for Henry and made it really shiny. And that's what Henry's going to do. He's going to take little incidents in life and he's going to polish them into teaching stories. And that's how he's going to write his book on channeling. And I came out of that session kind of disappointed. But that turned out that was the way that I did that. 
And then later, when this whole intuition thing came along, because I wrote the channeling book before that, I realized this thing about using memories was exactly what that got what I was describing with that memory of taking just a simple memory and polishing it with the wisdom of adulthood, you know, and uh, uh, coming up with some wisdom. With the one-on-one, -on -one, it requires some practice on the person to be able to let go enough to let the unconscious have a better chance of grabbing the memories rather than, see, memories say I'm being reminded of. I'm being reminded of someone asking me to do something for them. I'm being reminded of when I wore these clothes the last time. Being reminded of has all sorts of ways of having contamination from what your intent was, whereas in dreams you don't have that issue. So that's something that confronts the person. So being able to get into the state of abandon, you might say, uh, where they're just willing to really accept and they're not making some kind of an effort. And then the other part would have to be the relationship between dreams and the memory, which is what? Which is helps you better. Uh, some help that a wise person gives you that takes you 20 years to figure out, wow, you know, I'm glad I thought about all this time. It really makes a lot of sense. Or something that you can apply that day and get something out of it that day. And something in some ways, the memory situation may be as pertinent to that moment. And whereas the dream, like some of my dreams, I work with them for years and years and years. They're just much richer. Uh, but again, I think that would have something to do, too, with your ability to meditate on your memory and to see the universals beyond the specifics and so on. Because if we're going to see infinity in a grain of sand, then it must be true. Let me ask you one other question, Henry. With the, with the dream helper circles, if, if I understand it correctly, you take about one week to go through the whole process. It's, it's, it's not done in a single day. When it's being done by internet, my wife here, she does, they, the neighbors, they decide by internet who they're going to dream for, and then they meet at somebody's house and they sit around the next day and they talk about the dreams. When we were first doing it, we were doing it with residential workshops where they were there to go to sleep and the next day. Then when it moved to week-long workshops, maybe we would meet, you know, like on a Wednesday night to set up who we were going to dream for. And then Thursday afternoon sometime we would get together to discuss the dreams. When we moved to the Internet, we had to break down the thing and it became a seven-day process. Because we could just do one thing at a time. And now if we could move, that was emails, if we moved to uh, what do they call it? Zoom, where everybody could be on camera. That's some other people are developing that modality. When that modality is being developed, then everybody can be together. But you know the problem with that, Jeffrey, is schedules. I read out, you know, the 300 people who can be together at the same time, the same day, and so on. Whereas the internet method, you don't have to worry about that. Although it doesn't drug it out, but there's a little bit more thoughtful about it. But somebody will be developing the Zoom version, and then it'll be done overnight. So are you currently organizing these groups on the Internet? 
me, myself, no, I, I'm deliberately refusing to do any dream circles because then people attribute it to me and not to the process. I learned years ago when I could have been, you know, really getting lots of people to take it out into the field. I'd have an audience of 300 people. We would break into circles of seven each, and they would dream for them. I'd just give them some instructions from the stage. I'd pass out the instructions. They were doing it themselves. So there were all these stories. they come up on stage and talk about what happened. They ought to go and spread it. But me having set it up by telling the story and so on, they feel that that's how it has to be done. Where I've had people that you could do this, go to folks and folks and say, you didn't know why I invited you here tonight, but you're going to dream for one of us tonight. That's what's happening. And it still works. But to get people to believe that, that was a really hard thing. I wanted people to come and train with me. I said, well, to train with me, you've got to have the courage to go try something where you don't know if your credibility is going to hold up. If you're willing to expose yourself like that, I can be your teacher. You just go and get the people and tell them they're going to dream for them, and I'll tell you what you'll do after that. And if they'd have the nerve to do that, that's fine, because there isn't any expertise required beyond, you know, decent listening and sharing. But the this is the thing, Jeffrey, you bring me to this other thing that I wanted to, to, to bring up. And I think this is still very important, especially with the pandemic and masks. When I was assigned by the Edgar Casey people to develop a psychic training program that would be consistent with his spiritual ideals, where his spiritual ideals never say develop your psychic ability, I mean, become a psychic. I struggled with that really hard, how, I, how we could do that. So I went around and asking people, how have you ever experienced anything that makes you think there's such a thing as intuition or psychic? And the most common answer I would get, which has also been replicated in the literature, is, yeah, I'd be thinking of somebody, and then I'd get a phone call or a letter from that person. Okay. And then, often as a preamble, no, a post, postscript, they would say, that was kind of freaky or creepy. And I start, for two years, I started interviewing people. What's creepy about it? And I started to realize that the whole thing of boundaries, unwanted intimacy. So I started talking to a lot of ladies about what is it about unwanted intimacy? Why don't you want unwanted intimacy? Guys can't talk about that. They don't have the vocabulary, but the girls learning about intimacy and control sovereignty. The idea of sovereignty. Well, where did the word intimacy ever come up in the first place? And it came up at the time of the Industrial Revolution. And this has to do with non-dual awareness, Jeffrey. At the time of the, non, uh, the Industrial Revolution, people had been working and living in their homes. And now they left their home during the day to work in a factory. And we developed public lives versus private lives. Whereas that, that distinction had not existed before. Thus, intimacy became a way to bridge that. Fear of intimacy or offenses had a way of controlling that. And so the idea of people talking about getting a letter from a friend when they were thinking about them and so 
uncontrollable intimacy. And what does that have to do with the sense of self and boundaries? And this whole question then that intuition, that you can know stuff that you haven't been presented to since with your eyes and ears, ESP information that you weren't in front of, suggests that our boundaries are not what we think they are. However, if you look at people with having fences, boundaries are important to us. And the first issue we dealt with, is, I think, was with pollution. Because pollution doesn't respect national boundaries, and the two, quote, sovereign nations would fight over who had to control that pollution. You who creates the smoke, yeah, but now it's in my country. I got to deal with it. You're putting your smoke in my country, crossing a boundary, and they argue and so on. AIDS come along. And instead of, you know, talking about better sex lives, let's invent condoms. Uh, and then pretty soon the elect digital age comes along and copyrights, holding boundaries on ownership becomes more difficult to maintain. Uh, and AIDS. And now then we have, well, well now just recently with the, uh, and then non-dual sexuality. And what happens when people are having to confront non-dual gender? It, it gets them upset. They get uptight. The, the rigidity, but we're having to be more flexible. Those boundaries disappear. We're having to be more flexible. Now, why would I talk about boundaries? Well, in the spiritual literature, how, does, how do we begin our existence? But in the Garden of Eden, where there's this unity and no one has to work, or right? you can talk to the animals. And then all of a sudden, when we eat of the truth of good and evil, of distinction, of judgment, of duality, all of a sudden we get a fig leaf on. We're ashamed. Judgment and a fig leaf. There's the separation. Okay, now what else do we have in our spiritual literature? Uh, the end times, what do they call it? The, uh, the end times, not Armageddon, the, the apocalypse. And what does the apocalypse translate as? The lifting of the veil. The lifting of the veil is a boundary. The boundary between. Oh, look, another boundary that's going away. There used to be, now and then there was Edgar Casey or this, this. Now there's thousands of, of mediums who can bring, uh, bring voices to the dead. And you can have healings from what's about the relationships, not just to prove that there's life after death, but the relationship goes on. That boundary is dissolving. And lots of boundaries are dissolving. And, but, but one, and it gets us uptight because we seem to need the boundaries. And then you think about prophecies like the Hopi prophecy. We're going down this road and we come to a fork in the road. And so we look about the pandemic and so on. How are you going to respond? If, if, do we lose, if we're oneness with everything, does that mean I lose my sovereignty? My right to do as I please? I don't have, I can't do as I please because I'm being governed by my unconscious. I can only do what comes to me to do. But do I have any responsibility to the people that might be impacted by what I do? Well, see, I want to hold on to the bound. No, I don't. I do my own thing. So it brings up a lot of issues, and we're seeing those issues going on right now. Now, let me add one other thing. Maybe we don't believe in the hundredth monkey, but back when I was a graduate student, got my PhD in 1970. 
I can remember sitting in chairs in Los Angeles and reading about Westerners going to Japan to try to learn Zen. And the Zen master trying to describe what they're up to in words you cannot understand what in the world did it mean. And maybe one person comes back from Japan with some kind of a thing to say. Now, just recently, there was a doctoral dissertation where the person was writing about having interviewed 20 spiritual teachers in America today, Americans, gringos, who had experienced non-dual awareness, enlightenment, the Satori, as kids, as whatever, that is growing more and more and more people are having that experience. Let's talk about the 100th monkey. That our, what happens if the 100th monkey, all of a sudden, the population could have an experience of no boundaries? Judging from what's happening in, during this pandemic, for some people, that's going to be a shock and like a death experience and have a heart attack. Other people are going to feel the world singing and that they joined in heaven or something like that. You know, and I can see it happening. This is happening as we closer with the singularity. And I'm hoping that before I pass, I'll be able to use some of these little experiments that I've done. It's my dream to have people consciously walk into an, ex an experiment and come and have the experience of shared non-duality. I've done it the closest that I've come to, and they, they tease me about it because the sense of self is still so, so separate. I get a group of about a hundred, do they want me to describe this? Is it all right? When I get people involved in, in jazz singing, where it's all, we're all making it up all at once, you know, it takes some steps we have to lead up to it. And that's so that all stops. They start doing spontaneous writing. And then we start reading to one, uh, our group what was written. And we realize that we've had a real coming together in consciousness and so on. But I want to thank you, Jeffrey, for allowing me to talk about this stuff and go on record. I do have some professional publications peer-reviewed about some of these things, but not that dense. Well, you know what, Henry? I had a lovely time with you here. You really have an enormous depth of experience and enormous passion for what you do. So thank you so much for being with me. Well, thank you for saying that, Jeffrey. Thank you. Thank you. I've gotten into so much trouble for my work. Thank you. Thank you. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us.